Michael Wallace of Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Just giving you a preview of what's going to be happening on the podcast today before I begin. Always, 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 and forever like Heat Wave. Go ahead, find your favorite podcast, and you go ahead and you click in W-E-N-D-E-L-L-S, World in Sports. Make sure you find my podcast. And when you do, make sure you download. When you do, make sure you subscribe. When you do, make sure you rate and review. Give me them five stars. I'm really much appreciated. Give me those wonderful reviews. Always very much appreciated. We can keep this podcast going and going and going. Today on my podcast, Wendell's World of Sports, the storyline continues from Gruden Gate, the NFL PA, wants to petition the NFL to release all emails from Washington's football team investigation after John Gruden's resignation. Basically, they're saying we need to find out if there's any more bad actors, which which, uh, we revealed with John Gruden. Is there anybody else? Who are speaking about this? Is there anybody else who had the same type of uh, narrative that John Gruden had for all those uh, situations? And also, attorneys representing former uh, employees of the Washington football team also argue that the NFL needs to release the emails because, you know what? Hey, man, we're trying to look for a job, and we can't be painted with that broad brush in terms of what went on during the uh, days of misconduct and vile and disgusting behavior within the Washington football team's organization. So I'm going to get into that. Also going to be breaking down some games for the upcoming week six in the NFL. Talk a little bit about the Tampa Tom Buccaneers victory over the Philadelphia Eagles on Thursday night. Also going to be discussing the Kansas City football team versus the Washington football team. Also going to be speaking a little bit about the Chicago Bears and the Green Bay Packers. And of course, the game of the week, the Los Angeles Chargers versus the Baltimore Ravens, Lamar Jackson versus Justin Herbert. Going to be speaking about that. Also, college football, pretty decent games coming up. Oklahoma State at Texas, number 12 Oklahoma State at number 25 Texas. The number one ranked Georgia Bulldogs, interesting test against the number 11th ranked Kentucky Wildcats. How about that? Kentucky ranked in something other than basketball. Um, How much of a chance does Kentucky really have of beating Georgia? I will go ahead and discuss that as long as... As, as well as coaches, college coaches who are on the hot seat. Um, let me see here. Ed Orgeron, I'm speaking to you. So I'll be going ahead and I'll be speaking about that. And I'll be ending the podcast today with a little bit of Kyrie Irving and the Brooklyn Nets finally coming to an understanding where if Kyrie's not going to get vaccinated, he's not going to be playing. He's not going to be playing half the time. He's not going to be participating half the time. He's not going to be coming in and out. He's not going to be just on uh, road games until Kyrie conforms then he's not going to be a participant with the Brooklyn Nets and what's the chances of Kyrie conforming. Well, I'll be discussing those things. So, Wendell's World of Sports, an awesome, awesome podcast episode coming up. I'm excited. Remember, download, rate, review, subscribe, follow the most unique, entertaining, thought-provoking sports talk podcast going. With that being said, let me get to my intro and let me get things going. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. 
I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. As always, bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's world in sports. So doggone glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, namaste, wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom, Wendell's world in sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos, mi llamo, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's world in sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Before I begin, let me always say that I hope you're doing well. I hope you're doing everything that you need to do to make your block, to make your neighborhood, to make your place of employment, to make your household, to make where you hang out a better place to be. Doing it through love, peace, unity, understanding, having those difficult discussions. Shut up. Listen, learn, learn. Listen, shut up. Listen to those of a different skin color than you. Listen to those who love a different person than you. Listen to those who are from the different side of the tracks than you. Listen to those who worship a different God than you. Listen to those from another part of the country that's different from you. Listen to those from a different financial background than you. Listen to those of those of a different gender. Shut up, listen, and learn. Have that discussion. Educate yourself so we can move the society in a utopian type of place where, unfortunately, I'm not going to be part of. But your children, their children, and their children, and their children will be able to, with the foundations of love, peace, unity, harmony, understanding, respect for others that we'll be placing down before we uh, leave this earth, before we finally meet our maker. Wendell's World of Sports, so glad that you could be with us. So, a lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Oh man, I'm up here recording this on a Friday right now, the game between game one of the ALCS between the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros right now it is 4-3 as I'm recording this and recording this on a Friday night so in between that in between Smackdown in between the Oregon and California game and in between coming up at 10 o'clock the uh, AEW Rampage I've got a lot of things to discuss while I'm also going ahead and recording this podcast which is no wonder why I'm such at a high level of passion and enthusiasm tonight for what I'm going to be putting down, what I'm going to be discussing. Game one of the NLCS between the Dodgers and the Atlanta Braves. Hey, you know what? About 24 hours, 36 hours later, that was still a check swing. That was still a check swing, but that was a fabulous game five, deciding game between the Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants. Giants coming in with 107 victories, the Dodgers coming in with 106 victories. The fact that the Dodgers, who won 106 games, many people say they were the most talented team in baseball. The fact that they had to play a play-in game against a very tough St. Louis Cardinals team who just fired their manager after um, recently. The man was responsible or the man was head of a unbelievable turnaround where in, when we were in August, the Cardinals had no chance at all, it seemed like, to be making the playoffs. They won 17 straight games and uh, became one of the better teams in baseball and took the Dodgers on the road to the limit but uh, the Cardinals decided they were going in any different directions. Interesting, very interesting. But, you know, I kind of uh, equate this uh, as far as what the Dodgers are going through right now with college football. And I'll get into Gruden getting some other things that I want to talk about. But first, I want to uh, get into this. I want to get into this similarity. I want to get into this discussion before I get into um, the NFL and what uh, they're going to be doing with those 650,000 emails that were sent uh, during that time period but um look the Dodgers won 106 game right the many people including you probably sit there and say that without question the Dodgers were the most 
talented team in the league. The 106 victories back that up, right? So why in the world are we speaking about here in the divisional round of a playoff where we're going to be having two of the best teams, the Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants, who combine to win 213 baseball games? Why is that not for the NLCS? And why are the Dodgers, with the second-best record in the league, going ahead and playing Game 5 on the road against the Giants? What is going on here? Well, the reason for that is, guess what? There are concrete rules in terms of Major League Baseball, which everybody can go by, which everybody understands. So, yes, it might be a little bit unfair that the second-best team, as far as record-wise in baseball, but probably the most talented team, the best team, when you're speaking about talent winning 106 games, having to do what they do to get to the place where they are right now, playing for the National League Championship against the Atlanta Braves, and not having home-field advantage. But guess what? They didn't win their division. So, hey, how about that? Rules state that the... Teams who won the divisions actually get home field advantage throughout the playoffs. It works that way. So some years you're going to have a situation like you do this year where you have the best team in baseball who didn't win their division by one game, 106 victories against an Atlanta Brave team who took advantage of a very uh, weak and elite um, division. And there we go. The point that I'm trying to get at is the fact that in college football, then we're going to be coming up on college football in terms of the selection and where's everybody going to be and, you know, who's going to be number one in this selection committee. I'm going to be saying this over and over and over and over again when we're speaking there and we're speaking about who are the top four teams and who's going to be doing what. What is the barometer? What is the methodology of bringing up and putting these four teams as far as the four most uh, deserving teams to be in the uh, playoffs? What, what, what is the rationale? What are we speaking about here? College football has these guys who come in and, I don't know, did they, took a, did they take a look at film? I mean, what exactly is the criteria for these guys to come up with the four best teams in college football? Then you have to throw in all the politicized nonsense going on in terms of who's going to be the final four teams to play for the playoffs. And you have biases and you have all, all these different things thrown into the pot, which makes it more complicated. And because the selections process is secretive, we don't know exactly what the discussions are all about. We don't know how the selection committee is coming up with these four teams to represent the sport of college football to be playing in the college football playoffs. So we don't know. In baseball, we know. In football, NFL, we know. In basketball, we know. Even in, well, for the most part, college basketball, you still have 68 teams. But when you start getting down to, you know, uh, when Seth Greenberg was with Virginia Tech, coaching Virginia Tech, and he would whine and complain every single year because his team didn't get into the, the uh, tournament, and Jim Beheim did that a couple of years, and it went down to RPI, and it went down to strength of schedule, and it went down to metrics and all these type of things. Look, when you're whining and complaining about being the 69th or 70th team, then, you know, I really don't want to hear you. So basically, those who are going to be playing in the tournament for college basketball, they know, they understand how they got their spot. Now, you can quibble about seedings, and this team should have been a number three seed instead of a number five seed, and I can't believe this team is number one in the East when they should have been number two in the West. And okay, we can go ahead and debate all that nonsense. But the bottom line is, college basketball, when it determines who's going to be playing for its championship, pretty pretty understandable pretty much we can kind of follow and determine 
who's going to be the teams, who are going to be the teams that are going to be in the tournament, the teams that are going to be having the best chance to win the tournament. We, we can get into all that and we get into that and we understand that. In college football, I have no flipping idea. In college football, I don't know what the committee, committee is thinking about. I don't know if it's based on wins. I don't know if it's based on strength of schedule. I don't know. And, and, and they'll all say, well, it depends on all of these things. It depends on what your record is. It depends on who you played. It depends on how you look now, depending upon uh, in, in uh, conjunction to how you looked at the beginning of the season. You know, we, we, we take a look at film. We go ahead and debate. We do all these type of things. We, what, how, where, how was the... How is the meal made in terms of all of those things being put down? I mean, is it a situation where strength of schedule is going to be more important than the games that are played? Is, is the record going to be more important than strength of schedule? Or how badly did you beat a team? Or is head-to-head in terms of, well, Team X beat Team Y, but Team Z also played Team Y, and Team X beat Team Y by 15 points, while Team Z beat Team Y by 18 points. So because of that, Team Y is better than Team X. I mean, I don't, I don't know anything in terms of what the selection process is all about. Now, in many years, you could sit there and say, well, yeah, you know, if this team's going to be undefeated, that team's going to be undefeated, then without question, because of the conference that they're playing in, well, then yes, of course, that uh, undefeated team from the SEC, or yes, of course, that an Ohio State from the Big Ten is going to be in the college football playoffs. But yes, of course, if Oklahoma runs the table, that they're going to be in the uh, Big Ten, Big 12 championship. But of course, okay, that might be the criteria, but then is that going to be the only thing? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. My only rant on this for the first, I don't know, 10 minutes is just to say that, you know what, uh, we can quibble, and I've heard people talk about it's unfair, and Dodger fans are speaking about it's unfair, the route, the journey that the Dodgers had to go through just to get to the championship series. But hey, man, you know, at least you understand, at least there's rules, at least, you know, there's a, a, a situation where there's some understanding on how you get there. You know, there is no situation where there's a selection committee saying, okay, well, the Dodgers are going to be the number three seed because based on strength of schedule and who they played and taking a look at film and, you know, we have these, you know, ex-managers and these ex-front office guys making the decisions to say who's supposed to be the four best teams or who's supposed to be the best team in the National League, who's supposed to be the second best team in the American League, blah, blah, blah. It's just a situation where it's like, man, it just drives me flipping nuts with college football and college football is right around the corner and yes i didn't want to start the podcast by whining and complaining about it but uh i was watching the uh, baseball game as i mentioned before last night and it was like damn man this might be the best series of any of the playoff games including the world series i don't know if we're going to be getting the houston astros versus the atlanta braves i don't know if we're going to be getting the boston red sox versus the los angeles dodgers i don't know if we're going to be getting houston and los angeles i don't know if we're going to be getting boston and atlanta each one of those series have some pretty good juicy storylines uh, that they can get into but i think as far as just for our overall dynamic play the best that baseball had to offer was the giants and the los angeles dodgers now since both of those teams are in the national league Unfortunately, they can't be meeting in the World Series. So I just wish that this series would have been seven games or would have been the best uh, best out of seven instead of the best out of five. And I wish those two teams would have been playing in the uh, championship, the uh, NLCS instead of just a divisional playoff. But again, because of the rules that were already stated and that we already know about, it's kind of hard to, comp- to complain too much about that. Unlike college football where... 
how you come up with uh, four squads in this season? How in the hell are they going to try to uh, screw Cincinnati out of the possibility of playing in the final four? It's just all that stuff is just to me something that I wanted to get off my chest. And thank you very much for letting me get it off my chest. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So back to Gruden Gate here. Um, as I mentioned before in my pre-show and what I was going to be speaking about on the podcast, which is now, storylines continue from Gruden Gate, the NFLPA, to petition NFL to release all emails from the Washington football team investigation after John Gruden's resignation. The NFL Players Association on Tuesday said that it plans to request that the NFL released the remainder of the 650,000 emails reviewed as part of the investigation into the workplace misconduct of the Washington football team. And an NFL spokesman told USA Today that it had no plan to release those emails because of secretive reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Now, attorneys representing 40 former employees of the Washington football team is also urged has also urged the NFL to release the emails. I mean, for the most part, it's like, hey, look, man, you know, it was kind of uh, raunchy. It was kind of despicable. It was kind of, you know, vulgar and disgusting what those guys were doing with, you know, during my tenure with the Washington football team. I need those emails to be released just to let people know that, hey, man, I wasn't part of that nonsense, you know, because I'm going to be painted with a broad brush in terms of, oh, well, you worked for the uh, football team during that time period. Oh, you must have known something or you must have participated or you must have turned a blind eye. So, you know, I don't know if we can, you know, have you in our in our place of employment because of that. So, you know, there's former employees who are like, hey, well, you know, did you read the emails? I had nothing to do with that. I would never mention this, that, and the other. And we're speaking about over half a million emails in which I would never implicated or I would never took, uh, uh, I would never involved in any of those things. So statements made by lawyers Lisa Banks and Deborah Katz said it is truly outrageous that after the NFL's 10-month investigation involving hundreds of witnesses and 650,000 documented related to the longtime culture of harassment and abuse at the Washington football team, the only person to be held accountable in Luther's job is the coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. If the NFL felt it appropriate to release these offensive emails from John Gruden, which it obtained during its, its investigation into the Washington football team, it must also release the findings related to the actual target of that investigation. I'm yeah, I'm interested. And right now, the the NFL really doesn't have uh, the uh, really doesn't have the uh, foundation to stand on for them to say, oh, don't worry, trust us. Yeah, we went through all this. We did this whole investigation, and this is what we found, and this is what we did, and this was the punishment. So don't worry about it. Everything is taken care of. They they don't, they don't have they don't have that privilege. They they forfeited that with years and years and decades of uh, the National Football League and their owners acting like uh, privileged clowns. The uh, quote also from the lawyers goes on and says, "Our clients and the public at large deserve transparency and accountability." If not, the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell must explain why they appear intent on protecting the Washington football team and owner Daniel Snyder at all costs. I'll tell you why. Because they don't want to be setting precedents. They don't want to be sitting there talking about, oh, shit. If Daniel Snyder is going to lose his job or lose the uh, right to own the football team because of emails that were racist or emails that were misogynistic or emails that were uh, anti-gay, then, you know, shit, what's going to be in my emails? What's going to stop some employee that uh, I employed years ago who might still have beef with me because they felt I fired them 
uh, unintentionally or uh, it wasn't fair for them to all of a sudden leak some shit that uh, I sent to them. I mean, what's going to be the situation where a female employee who was employed by my organization years ago when I owned the ex-football team that's going to all of a sudden come to the light and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, when I was here, this is what happened, and now I'm going to be in jeopardy of possibly losing my football team because the precedent had been set with Daniel Snyder. That's the reason why the NFL doesn't want to go ahead and release these emails, and the fact that you're taking a look at the NFL right now and how strong it is right now, and the NFL for the last couple of years is trying to, as we say, right is wrong in terms of social justice and everything. This would kind of be a bad look. I mean, John Gruden, when you're speaking about anti-gay, when you're speaking about, you know, um, being critical of players who knelt during the national anthem, who were backing the efforts of Colin Kaepernick, when you're speaking about while he wasn't a employee of any of the NFL football teams during a part of that time, this was a guy who was, you know, closely tied in with the National Football League as far as being a commentator, a broadcaster's concern for Monday Night Football, and still had strong relationships within many levels of NFL, the NFL teams, not just with the organizations, but also with the front office. So, I mean, here's one of the key players for decades representing the NFL either as a coach, either as a broadcaster, and he's up there speaking about gays and queers and faggots and pussies and anti-gay and all this kind of stuff and Michelin lips and all these type of things. And meanwhile, the NFL is trying to uh, paint itself as a woke, and I mean woke in a good way, in a moving forward in the right direction type of uh, type of league with, uh, you know, the uh, hiring of female referees, organizations hiring female coaches, uh, players in Oakland Raiders, the Los Angeles Raiders, excuse me, Oakland, Los Angeles, strike one, strike two. The Las Vegas Raiders, they have a gay player who actually came out in the reception and the uh, opening of welcomeness toward that player was uh, met overwhelmingly. So the NFL right now, the social justice things that they're trying to do with social justice, even though their hiring process in terms of minorities need a whole lot of work, but still, you know, we're NFL is speaking. We need it. We need it. We need it. We need it. We're working toward it. And then you have something like John Gruden comes out that puts a stain, that puts a halt, that puts a divot into the progress, that puts a pothole into the avenue, into the street of where the NFL is trying to go right now. So if John Gruden is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of these emails coming out showing vile, disgusting behavior, what is that going to mean? So the NFL is like, nah, that's okay. We don't need to go ahead and we don't need to, uh, release all of these emails we don't need to make these emails known be known and we don't need those type of things so moving forward like i said just trust us but again when you take a look at the background when you take a look at the record of what the nfl has done we should not be giving them the benefit of the doubt wendell's world of sports i'm your host wendell wallace so glad that you could be with us i'm interested to see exactly especially during a time when the owners were fighting tooth and nail in terms of the should we kneel? Should we not kneel? What about the national anthem type of thing? I would be wondering what someone like a Jerry Jones, I would be wondering someone like a Robert Kraft. I would be wondering what some of these owners would be emailing during that period of time and what exactly was being said, what was being put down during that time. And by the reluctance of the NFL not to go there, then, you know, I'm quite sure that, uh, you know, there's some shit going down in some email. There's some stuff going down right now where if it did become public knowledge, I mean, we're speaking about a Jerry Jones, possibly we're speaking about an owner of great 
substance or a great uh, public figure in terms of the attention that's being brought on them, the, the, the public known of that owner, I mean, it wouldn't be a very good look. It wouldn't be a very good look at all. And that's, as I mentioned before, that's just what the Kaepernick situation. There were so many things that the NFL was dealing with during that time. You're speaking about, again, the uh, drafting of Michael Sam, in which John Gruden called him a queer. I mean, it was the, that was the situation just concerning that. There was also a lot of uh, consternation and bickering and going back and forth and discussion about Roger Goodell a couple of years ago, whether he should continue to be the commissioner of the NFL. In fact, you had Jerry Jones up there trying to lead a coup to usurp the power of Roger Goodell and get him on out of there. So I can only imagine what those emails were like. And I'm not just trying to paint this as, you know, um, Jerry Jones is is the main guy in terms of him, you know, sending out vile, disgusting things or emails or something like that. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying in this period of time, and you're speaking about all of those emails, and you're speaking about the NFL of 32 owners being like a boys club, and those guys are conducting business with each other and those type of things. Again, if John Gruden is sending these emails and he's sending them with such... Uh, freeness with such freedom and such privilege in terms of he could be sending these things and not worrying about who sent them, sending them to Bruce Allen. Is, this, is he going to be sending it to anybody else? Is, is this going to be a group chat? Is this anything else? So, you know, with the NFL, it'll be interesting to see moving forward what's going to be happening. And when the NFL completed this investigation into Washington's workplace culture, culture in July, it fined the franchise $10 million dollars Tanya Snyder, who was named the team's co-CEO in June, took over the day-to-day duties of the franchise from her husband, Dan. All senior executives, including the Snyders, were ordered to take part in workplace conduct trading, which is, you know, whatever. All right, fellas, welcome to workplace conduct trading. Today, we will learn that you will not be sending topless pictures of your female employees through email. That's not a good thing, all right? All right, now please refrain. Please take down some notes here. Here are some words that are I'm going to write down that you should not be using in your email. Okay, if you have a gay employee in your workplace, please on an email do not refer to him as a queer. Please do not refer to him as a faggot. Yes, Mr. Schneider. Can I refer to him as a pussy? No, no, Dan, you can't do that either. I can't? Oh, well, thank you so much. I didn't know that. Okay. Now, thank you very much. Other words, if you're going to be speaking about African Americans, please refrain from using the words coon, jigaboo, nigger, sending emails like jokes where you're referring to black people as gorillas, facial features, Please refrain from doing those things. And Snyder's are up here taking notes like, okay, gotcha. All right. Hold on for a second here. You're you're getting this down right? Do not send emails with the word nigger when speaking about a black player or employee. I've got a lot of studying to do tonight. i got to remember that I can't call someone a nigger. I can't call somebody a faggot. I can't call somebody a pussy. I can't call somebody a bitch. Boy, I'm going to be up. I'm going to be burning the midnight oil tonight. I sure hope I can at least get, you know, both of these correct on the test when we take them, when we take it later on in the the training class. I mean, come on, man. Give me a break. How about this, Dan? 
Go ahead and act like a uh, regular, normal human being. And then Washington is going to be up here with five-day notice. Oh, yeah, we're going to uh, retire Sean Taylor's number. I mean, five days? <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, no transparency in that one. Jeez. So, well, an NFL spokesperson told ESPN's John Klein the league won't reopen the investigation into the Washington football team based on those recently leaked emails. They consider the Gruden emails beyond the scope of the investigation. This whole thing started because of the Washington football team, man. What in the flip is going on? The spokesperson said the NFL did not release the emails pertaining to Gruden. So story from YahooSports.com. Dan Snyder used Gruden's emails in court filings seeking action from Bruce Allen. This is all this stuff really got started. What was reported this past Tuesday in the LA Times prior to Lisa recent leaks, Washington football team owner Daniel Snyder used some of the same emails in a court filing as part of a legal battle involving ousted team executive Bruce Allen, who was fired in 2019, about really about six or seven years too late. Snyder's attorney submitted one of Gruden's emails in a June U.S. District Court filing in Arizona. So Snyder put this on blast, man. He put this out in the street. It was an effort to compel Allen to produce discovery as part of Snyder's defamation lawsuit against an Indiana, excuse me, against an Indian media outlet that falsely linked him to Jeffrey Epstein. So this Indian media outlet, I guess, was talking about Daniel Snyder's having ties to Jeffrey Epstein. If you don't know who Jeffrey Epstein is, if you don't know anything about that scumbag, go ahead and look him up. So, but, uh, in terms of it dealing with young children. But so, you know, basically Snyder was like, hey, wait a minute, man. You can't go ahead and uh, defile my name like that by linking me to Jeffrey Epstein. I'm going to sue. So that's exactly what he did. He sued New Delhi-based Media Entertainment Arts Worldwide, which is M-E-A-W-W, in August of 2020, seeking $10 million over the false claims of sexual harassment and workplace misconduct at the Washington football team. Snyder sought to connect Allen to those false reports. So basically what he's saying is that Allen was kind of behind the situation in terms of trying to defile Snyder's name. And Snyder was like, oh yeah, you're going to believe this guy? Take a look at these emails. Who are you going to believe, huh? So the emails issued in Snyder's court filing are identical to the one cited in the New York Times story. It said that uh, Gruden referred to NFL Roger, uh, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell as a faggot and a clueless Clueless anti-football pussy. What? I mean, he, the man doesn't even know how to cuss correctly. A faggot and a clueless anti-football pussy. What? 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 Huh? How does that? How do you use? I don't. I don't even know. You know. I don't even know how. I haven't used the p word when referring to a man. Again, if I wanted to be vile and demean him, I would call him a bitch. I mean, what was the last time, really, fellas? And even ladies, because I've seen, I've heard plenty of ladies call other women bitches. Who, when, what, the last time that you referred to a guy or even a gal that you're trying to um, insult as a faggot or a pussy? You just call them a bitch. So, a, he's, a, he's, Roger Goodell is a faggot? I don't know. I don't know. The report notes per the LA story that Gruden's name was redacted in the particular filing and instead referenced in ESPN personality tour, uh, per the LA Times. So Gruden's name wasn't put in there. It was just, oh yeah, a guy who was uh, an ESPN personality said that. Not mentioning the name. All right. All right. Gruden's name and email address weren't redacted apparently mistakenly in other in another exchange. So 
That's this. This is the whole thing. It's a tangled web that they weave. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is that the NFL doesn't want any of these emails coming out because it'll make the league look bad. I'm interested now to see exactly on other things, the hiring practices of women, their thoughts and opinions about women who work in their workplace. I wonder what their discussions and what their jokes and what their emails were about the cheerleaders uh, for these other teams. The Washington football team, I think, is far from the only organization that had uh, a a fraction or a percentage of dysfunction in their workplace environment. So for me, I'm interested to see, you know, what else is going to be coming out. I mean, the football, you know, we're speaking about the NFL here. I mean, for how many decades has the NFL been the ultimate boys club? And most of the, you know, misogynistic type of deals and when we're speaking about demeaning women and racism and all these other things that you find in any other workplace in any other society has always been kind of thrown at the lap or we've been stereotyping that it's been in the locker room. You know, in, in the NFL for decades and decades have had, have had to overcome, you know, the situation where there was a time where women were not in the allowed, were not allowed in the locker room. And when they were finally allowed in the locker room, you know, you had some fucking Neanderthals who really didn't appreciate the fact that they had women in the locker room. So these players would go ahead and do everything they could to make these women uncomfortable so they wouldn't return. So for a long time, the NFL had to deal with that. And, a lot of the things, you know, when we're speaking about the ills and we're speaking about some of the dysfunction and we're speaking about some of the negativity when it comes to the NFL has been laid bare at the feet of the players, whether it's because of domestic violence, players getting arrested, um, you know, acting badly, all those type of things. It's always been directed mainly at the players and what's going to be the punishment, what should be the punishment for players, these type of things. What should happen to Ray Lewis? What should happen to Dante Stallworth? What should happen to Michael Vick? What should happen to Ray Rice? What should happen to uh, all of these players who uh, do bad things? Now, the pendulum has swung, has, has, uh, has turned just a little bit now to the owners. And we saw Jimmy Ursay a few years ago get in trouble for some, some, some stupid ass shit that he did blaming it basically on the fact that he was an alcoholic. Um, you know, the whole Daniel Snyder thing and his dysfunction with the harassment and the demeaning workplace environment that he had with the Washington football team probably still has. He's just kind of keeping some of that under wraps and it's not as bad as it used to be, but I'm quite sure there's still a lot of dysfunction, even though let their emails show that it was really bad a few years ago. So, you know, who's going to be the blame? Who's going to be the fall guy? You know, when we're speaking about other um, organizations with these emails, who else is going to, you know, what other deviances and what other horrible things are going to be brought to light by these emails? The NFL does not want to be dealing with any of that because if we're now going to be taking a look at a league where it's just ripe with misogynistic, racist um, lunacy, what's that mean for the NFL moving forward? How can the NFL with a straight face talk about, you know, this month we're going to be uh, doing what we need to do for breast cancer. Remember the, the, the pink socks and that type of thing, or, you know, uh, the, the NFL is, uh, is uh, working with that. When the NFL speaks about inclusion, when the NFL speaks about diversity, when the NFL speaks about all of these things, I don't care, man. I don't care how much money you throw at a, at an organization. I don't care how many PSA spots you run. I don't care how many times you trot out the Peyton Manning or a Drew Brees or these guys coming out there and you know, how much time they spend in the community and how much community work that they do. I mean, you, you can do all that stuff that you want to, but it's still not going to, you know, you know, perfume the stench of 
what would what would be in these 650,000 emails and we're speaking about such views and we're speaking about such harmful negative Neanderthal type views when it comes to the hiring practices of minorities and women and other type of things and, and, and gays and other types of issues that you know in this country in this world we've moved slowly but surely but we're at a different place now that we were five, six, eight, ten, twenty, fifty years ago. The progress is not fast enough, and there's no excuse. There's no reason why it shouldn't be faster. We think we know why, at least in this country, why it hasn't been faster in terms of true rights, true unity, true opportunities, true respect for women and Hispanics and blacks and Asians and gays and such. It's because there's a certain group of people, group of wealthy people of a certain gender who really don't need to be bothered with that type of nonsense. And because of the country that I live in, which for the free thinking world we are, when we're speaking about this country, the dumbest people on the planet, when we're speaking about the racist, ignorant, selfish, divided states of America, and then everybody has their agenda, which centers around them and their idea of what they believe, well then, yeah, when you're speaking about, you know, the ills and the defects and what we need to do to, uh, bring, um, to, to bring harmony and to bring, you know, peace to African Americans and gays and Hispanics and Latinos, the same thing, and Asians and such. I mean, we're far behind the curve where we should be in terms of having true unity, understanding and education and respect for different groups of folks. But, you know, it boils down also to what's going to be happening in the workplace. So at least, you know, glass half full, taking a look at this, the fact that the NFL has scurred out their out their brains to have these 650,000 emails come to light because they know exactly what is going to be, it's what, what the damage could be done to their franchise, to their organizations. I mean, does the NFL really still want to go back to that bullshit where, back where, you know, they started to come around on Colin Kaepernick and you had these fucking idiots out there talking about, well, I'm done with the NFL. That'll be it for the NFL. Hey, take a look. The ratings are down on the NFL. You know why? Because they're anti-American. They're anti-flag. They're anti-country. They're siding with Colin Kaepernick. They're anti-military. Remember when the idiots took hold of the microphone, the, uh, took hold of the, uh, the boom box and started, uh, well, the bullhorn or whatever and started uh, calling out that bullshit. Oh, you guys out there, yeah. I'm not watching the NFL anymore. Fuck that. I'm only watching NASCAR. Hell yeah, I'm only do that because the you know, NFL is all about uh, anti-American and anti-military and anti-police and blah, blah, blah because they're following Kaepernick and the inmates are running the asylum and how can these guys let their employees do something like that shit? If I did that at my workplace, I would be fired ASAP, but you got these million-dollar ignorant babies going ahead and doing this type of stuff. It's wrong, it's wrong of course the majority of these folks who were kneeling and protesting in a very peaceful way were black but of course the idiots and the ignorance and the racists and the foolish and the privileged never brought that up it was no oh, but you know this that and the other this that and the other code word we knew where they were coming from especially when it was the old yeah i'm not watching nfl anymore i'm only going to be watching nascar then bubba wallace came along and they didn't know what the fuck to do their heads exploded so, you know, it, it, it's the, the NFL doesn't want to have to go through that bullshit again. The NFL does not want to have that type of attention fall down on them again. So if they release these 650 emails, 
This ain't 2015. This ain't 2012. This ain't 2005. This ain't 1999. This ain't 1989. This ain't 1970. As John Gruden will tell you, uh, you know, you do some bullshit like that, even if, though I wasn't an employee of the Las Vegas Raiders and such, I still lost my fucking job in my football career in terms of anything is done. Unless I, I don't know, does Oprah still have a platform where he can go on to? But can, can, can someone, you know, get Oprah back and have him do a sit down? I don't know, Gail King or I don't know, somebody where he could sit there and be, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Can I uh, go down to the black communities? Can I go to women's shelters? Can I go down to a gay parade? Or can I go to a pride rally and do all those type of things? Can I be have a photo taken with Elton John? I don't know. Can I do something in terms of uh, saying I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry? There is a road for redemption, as I mentioned before in my last podcast concerning John Gruden. But, I mean, you know, first thing he's got to do is say, you know what, I... Uh, I was a racist and I didn't even know it. I was a misogy- I was a misogynist and I didn't know it. I had hatred toward gays and I didn't know it. But now after speaking and educating myself, now I understand and now I'm going to try to do everything I can to be an advocate for those groups. I think if John Gruden goes that route of being 58 years old, I don't know if he'll get a, I doubt that he'll ever get an opportunity to be a head coach. And I doubt if one of the major uh, networks, CBS, NBC, whoever carries the, uh, National Football League, I doubt if they'll he'll ever get an opportunity to be a Tony Romo-like or get back on the stick and uh, broadcast in that venture. But, I mean, just as far as his legacy is concerned and doing something, doing something, I think that um, there's a chance that Gruden can salvage a small portion of his NFL career, his NFL life. But, uh, you know, new day. And as I mentioned before, the NFL... With the release, if they release those 650,000 emails, man, it will be bad news. New era, new day. Thank you very much, Black Lives Matter. Thank you very much to the Me Too movement. Thank you very much for the movement for gays and lesbians and transgender folks that, you know what, in the year 2021, there are some repercussions to uh, come about when you go ahead and and you start doing these things. And the NFL owners, as privileged, as out of touch, as rich, as powerful as they are, even they know that. So I think for the overall point of the game, and, and, and for the most part, I would still say if those things came out that, um, you know, as long as the Cowboys are doing their thing, as long as Tom Brady is doing their thing, as long as the NFL has enough white quarterbacks that they can trot out there in front of the camera and show everybody that, hey, you know what, we're great guys and we're wonderful guys that the league will survive. I mean, hell, it's football. It's football, for heaven's sakes. It's an institution. You think being a misogynist you think a league that's full of racist and misogynistic and anti-gay folks are going to stop the nfl from uh being the king of having such a strong tremendous impact on our society especially our sports society no i don't think so but but why you know cause problems when you really don't need it why have headaches even if they're going to be short and minor when you don't need it so I just wish these emails would come out so they could do something to get the fuck out of, to get rid of uh, John Gruden. That would be Mountain John Gruden, Jesus. Uh, um, Daniel Snyder, because with him being the owner of my Washington football team, we have no chance of ever being relevant. None. Zero. Zip. As long as he's owner, we will always be a laughing stock. We'll always be a joke. We'll always be dysfunctional. And, um, you know, for a 
organization for a franchise that uh, you know was one of the teams of the 80s and such and has such a pretty good tradition as the uh, Washington football team at least during my uh, during my lifetime and how much that team means, needs uh, means to the community of the Washington DC metropolitan area which is half of Virginia uh, Montgomery County, Prince George's County, Anne Arundel County. You're speaking about Fairfax County. You're speaking about Arlington. You're speaking about you know all of the the Washington D.C. area. I mean, you're speaking about what an institution that team is, and to have it ruined by Daniel Snyder to the point where there's going to be generations. As long as Daniel Snyder is the owner, there's going to be generations of people who are grow, going to be growing up Washington football fans who are never going to taste anything in terms of respect or dignity. I mean, you think New York Jet fans are going to be long-suffering? You think that the uh, Cleveland Browns, for a while, they were long-suffering? I mean, you take a look at all the sports, and you take a look at all of the uh, teams and droughts, the Boston Red Sox and the Cleveland Indians and the Minnesota Vikings and the the, uh, Sacramento Kings, the Kansas City Kings. I mean, you can go ahead and you can take a look at all the sad sack organizations that haven't done anything in sports, and you take a look at their fan base, especially the strong fan bases like the Cleveland Browns, like... The Buffalo Bills, like, um, you know, th- those type of uh, fan bases. The Washington football community is just as strong as those guys. And to know with Daniel Snyder at the helm that we are never, never, never in any way, shape, or form ever going to taste the, taste the food of decency and respect is sad. It's really sad. So my homeboys who grew up Washington football fans who are of my age and their children, their children never going to, uh, th- their experience is going to be different because with Snyder at the owner, they're never going to have the experience that we had in 1983 with Joe Gibbs and Joe Thiesman and the Fun Bunch and the um, and Joe Gibbs and the Hogs and, and those type of things. They're not going to have the fandom. They're not going to have the memories. They're not going to be able to pass along the good memories to their children of, you know, uh, Doug Williams, what he did being the first black quarterback, not only to start in a Super Bowl, but to win a Super Bowl and to have the best quarter in NFL history. If you speak about what he did and the amount of importance of that game represented, Doug Williams' second quarter in the Super Bowl against the Denver Broncos was the most impressive quarter in NFL history. The fact that he was part of the Washington organization at that time, and then our third NFL Super Bowl championship coming with our third different quarterback, Mark Rippon at the helm with, um, you know, that with that team and Joe Gibbs. It's just, you know, great memories, wonderful memories. And, you know, we passed that along to our children and that's how their foundation has started of being a Washingtonian as far as being a Washington football fan. Now what do they've got? What do they have to go to? What? What are they going to do now? What's what's going to be there? Hey, you know what, kids? Um, you know this. You know this is my Washington football team fandom, and it's based on it's based on what? What is it based on? Over the last twenty years, what has it been based on? What event? What Robert Griffin the third? Oops. What year? What season? Can we say which encapsulated? why I'm such a diehard Washington football fan for the younger generation, for our children, pass along to their children. They're going to give up the game of football. That's going to be the case. Or they'll just go ahead and just bet and play fantasy football and that'll be good enough. They'll be following the, uh, they'll be following the everyday of the uh, generation that is right now. So there you go. So the NFL, 650,000 emails, Gruden Gate, all of that stuff. 
They want it to go away. They want Tom Brady to still be amazing. They want Tampa Bay to still do their thing. They want Zach Wilson to uh, be the quarterback that's going to light up New York. They want the Dallas Cowboys to be continuing what they're doing. They want the Pittsburgh Steelers to become relevant again. They want Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers to be doing what they're doing. They want all of these things to go away because if that's going on, then as I mentioned before, in the country that we live in and the football fans that we have in this country, man, they don't give a damn in terms of you know owners being racist and owners being misogynistic and owners being anti-gay and all those type of things, man. As long as the... Uh, as long as my parlay comes through, as long as I win my fantasy league, who fucking cares? That'll be the majority of the sentiment of those things. So a lot of things to uh, deduce, a lot of things to discuss. I'm glad that we discussed them. Now, let's go ahead and talk about week six. No escaping this. Wendell's World in Sports. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. When you're speaking about uniqueness, when you're speaking about entertainment, when you're speaking about pure joy, there is no escaping this. Wendell's World in Sports. Man, I really love the work of Montrez Ford, of the Street Profits. I mean, I wish that guy was in AEW. I really do, because... Or I just wish that Vince was 20 years younger because I think a Vince McMahon of 20 years younger could turn Montrez Ford into a superstar. The guy's got it all. He's got great charisma, very well-spoken, great um, presence, great ring work. He's awesome. To me, he could be someone in the same vein as a Shawn Michaels. I really do. I really do. I think he's that talented. Um, but uh, the Vince of today... And with the WWE and everything, I've spoken before about, you know, the, the WWE needs to get younger. Where are the young stars? Where are the young stars? Where are the young stars? You got Crown Jewel, and you're going to be having a fight between Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar is damn near 50 years old. At least he's in, what, his mid-40s? Bobby Lashley is going to be fighting Bill Goldberg. Bill Goldberg is 54 years old. Bobby Lashley is 45. Now, Lashley's been doing great work. His... Mike, uh, what he's doing on the mic is fantastic. I think that uh, since he's free of NBP to grab the stick and say something, I think he's been wonderful. But uh, the man is 45 years old. He doesn't look 45 years old. He's doing some of his best work, but uh, he's still 45 years old. So you take a look at uh, the landscape of what the WWE is right now. You've got uh, Montrez Ford. you got his beautiful wife, Bianca Belair. You have Matt Riddle, who I wish he could just drop this bullshit gimmick of him being you know, yo, dude. I mean, once we kind of get past that, I think you've got a lot of work with in him. You've got Drew McIntyre still. You've got some p- 
people that you can work with, and there's some I'm probably forgetting, but um, I just wish that, uh, you know, a guy like Ricochet, I wish a guy like a uh, Mustafa Ali, I wish a guy like a Montrez Ford would go for the AEW and let Tony Khan and Dustin Rhodes and and his older brother and those guys see what they can do uh, because, you know, matches between him and Omega and Pac and Darby Allen and Sammy Gravana and, you know, the uh, Young Bucks. I mean, you take a look at, you know, the style of a, a Daniel Bryan. You take a look at uh, Montre- a style of a Montrez Ford. You take a look at a style of a, Ma- of a Mustafa Ali. You take a look at a style like... Uh, of um, who else am I forgetting here? Montrez Ford, Mustafa Ali. Oh yeah, and uh, Ricochet. You take a look at those guys, and could you imagine the performances they could have with those uh, talents, with the talents over there in AEW? It would be awesome. It would be awesome. So I don't know. Moving forward here, moving forward, because I'm watching right now as I'm recording this. I'm watching um, the uh, tag team matchup on SmackDown between the Street Profits and the Usos, and of course the Usos are going to hold on to the belts, but the performance in itself. I'm taking a look at, and uh, Montrez Ford, man, the guy's a star. The guy should be a star. Hopefully, they'll have plans for him to be a star. It took Big E a while to finally get to the uh, place where he's at, and I guess you could say Big E also is a as a star. He's young enough where, you know, you can really get some good years from him, but it took Big E a while to get to the plateau that he is right now or get to the level that he is right now. So, you know, Montrez still a relatively young guy. Maybe in a couple of years, maybe he can ascend to being a main eventer at WrestleMania in front of a hundred thousand people, wherever they're gonna be having it having it in, you know, I don't know, twenty twenty four or something like that. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us week six of the NFL. Some interesting games that I want to talk about. Thursday night's game between the Tampa Tom Buccaneers and the Philadelphia Eagles. Tampa Bay coming ahead and winning twenty eight twenty two. Tom Brady threw two touchdown passes despite having a sore thumb. Leonard Fournette ran for two scores. Brady finished 34 of 42, 297 yards in an interception. Fournette ran for 81 yards, caught six passes for 46 yards. Again, the run-pass ratio, the pass-run ratio was more to the liking, I think, for the Tampa Bay fans if you're going to be having Tampa Bay repeat as champions. But uh, playing with an injured thumb, as I mentioned before, Brady tossed TD passes on Tampa Bay's first two drives while going 11 for 12 for 121 yards. I wonder when we're going to start, you know, giving a little bit more shine, a little bit more spotlight, a little bit more high fives, and a little bit more doing the boogaloo in terms of uh, excitement, in terms of kudos to the offensive line. You've got a 44-year-old man in Tom Brady who is playing some fabulous football. From a mechanical standpoint, from an arm strength standpoint, and all those type of things, he's great. He's wonderful. He's fantastic. But, man, the reason why he can do this is because of what the offensive line is doing right now for uh, Tampa Bay. I mean, they've been absolutely outstanding. And it would be a much different story. And I would feel a little bit more apprehensive about Tampa Bay doing what they were doing if, say, for instance, the offensive line so far for Tampa was just, say, slightly above average. They were C plus B. I, don't, I would be a little bit concerned about the longevity of a 17-game season with a 44-year-old quarterback named Tom Brady, but the offensive line has been so great at pass protection that Brady has been able to do with things a lot of times, looking like Ken Stabler with that offensive line of the Oakland Raiders back in the 70s. So he's been he's been fantastic. So the Buccaneers improve to four and one, five and one. What are they now? Five and one. Five, excuse me, five and one. Important ten games off between of uh, ten days off between games for Tampa because those guys have to uh, get healthy again. 
Rob Gronkowski because the ribs didn't play. Levante David because of an ankle didn't play. They were inactive. And then you have Richard Sherman who was picked off the street because of the lack of depth from the quarterback position for the Buccaneers. He got injured against the Eagles, left with a hamstring injury in the first quarter. And they were already missing Carlton Davis, Sean Murphy, Bunting, and safety Antoine Woodfield before Sherman went down. And that was during Philadelphia's first drive. So Arenas, after the game, was talking about he doesn't know the severity of the injury. So, you know, the 10 days between games that Tampa Bay is going to have to rest and recover is going to be important. Now, six games played. Still 11 more to go, a lot of football left to be played, a lot of more storylines to be told, and a lot of more uh, a lot more adventures to be had with this team in Tampa Bay, just like any other team in the NFL. But, you know, going to the bye week, you know, they, they, they're, they're putting themselves, themselves in good shape. So you go up against Chicago, then you go ahead, and then you play New Orleans, then you have the bye week, then you have Washington, then you have the Giants, Indy, Atlanta, then the Bills. So coming into the game against Oakland. So they have 10 days off the bye week. It's now for a couple of more days. So a couple of more games. So you have 10 days off, then you play Chicago, then you're at New Orleans, then you have the bye week, then you have the game at Washington, then the Giants, then at Indianapolis, at Atlanta, and then Buffalo, which could be a preview of the upcoming Super Bowl. So coming into that Bills game, what are you thinking about, man? You're thinking about Tampa being what? Anywhere between 10 and 3, 12 and 1, depending upon the injury situations, depending upon when Gronk comes back, depending upon when they can get some uh, some personnel back in the uh, cornerback uh, secondary positions. So, yeah, we're looking at 10 and 3, 12 and 1 for that game later on in the season against Buffalo. But so far, as I mentioned before, a good win on the road against Philadelphia, who, falling to 2 and 4, are still in a rebuilding process. I said, I'll say one thing about the uh, Eagles for those, and they're getting a lot of boos. I was watching a little bit of the uh, Eagles and the Buccaneers in between watching the uh, game, the um, Giants and the Dodgers. But, uh, you know, you take a look at that game. The Eagles ran the ball against Tampa Bay better than any team that Tampa's played so far this season. They ran for 100 yards on 19 carries, which if you do the math, that's around five yards per carry. The defense for the second streak week played well, held Tampa to under 400 total yards on 11 drives and 73 plays, allowed only seven points in the second half, none in the fourth quarter of a close game. They actually outscored Tampa Bay in the uh, second half. So those are some, those are some glass half full type of evaluations that you can take a look at. But, you know, if we can be real here, we can keep it 100. We can do all those things. The jury is still out on Jalen Hurts. I don't know, man. 12 for 26, 115 yards, putrid, one touchdown, one interception, almost uh, concussed a uh, security guard after he ran a touchdown and threw the ball very close to his noggin. Um, look, Jalen Hurts, still a work in progress. To sit there and say, well, you know, doggone it, 12 for 26, 115 yards against the Buccaneers. Yeah, that's bad. And the fact that the Buccaneers secondary was depleted. Yeah, that was bad. But we're still talking about a pretty talented Tampa Bay defense. And you're still talking about a pretty good front four from the Buccaneers. So I'm I'm not going to read into they need to uh, bench him or anything like that based on that. I mean, he came off a really strong game against the uh, Kansas City football team the week before. But so, you know, Thursday night game, short week. Again, very... He's in the starting stages of even having the opportunity to see if he's going to be a 
franchise quarterback or a starting quarterback in the NFL. I don't think Jalen Hurts is ever going to be a quote-unquote franchise quarterback. There's very few quote-unquote franchise quarterback. But I think there's a difference between franchise quarterback and starting quarterback. Starting quarterback could be game managers. Starting quarterback, I mean, Justin Herbert, franchise quarterback. Lamar Jackson, franchise quarterback. Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, franchise quarterbacks. But if you take a look at someone like uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, if you take a look at someone like a, a Kurt Cousins, if you take a look at someone like uh, along that ilk, I think Jalen Hurts could possibly be in that reign. You take a look at Kyler Murray, franchise quarterback. You take a look at the potential of a Trevor Lawrence, franchise quarterback. You take a look at someone like a Zach Wilson and the physical attributes that he has, franchise quarterback. Don't know about Justin Fields. Justin Fields could be somewhere in between franchise and starting quarterback. I think somewhere between franchise and starting quarterback could be good enough to get you a Super Bowl championship. If you're just a starting quarterback, you're going to need some help. If you're a franchise quarterback, then you're going to be responsible, mainly responsible for winning that championship like the ultimate franchise quarterback that we have right now, Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, franchise quarterback. But, you know, Tua Tungabailoa, we don't know. Jalen Hurts still in that group in terms of we don't know, but I think the ceiling for Hurts moving forward if we were to max out on everything that he could get would be a starting quarterback uh, moniker. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. There's been signs of improvement, though. I mean, if you know, I mean, if you're speaking about Jalen Hurts, number one, I always love his character. I love him as a person in terms of being a leader. I've always said that he has Zach, uh, Dak Prescott type of uh, fiber as far as him being a leader in terms of him being someone as he matures and as he grows in his NFL career that he's going to be a quarterback that these his teammates are going to want to follow that they're going to trust so there's not going to be any character issues with this guy if he fails it's not going to be because he didn't give it everything he's got he's not going to do it because of him being a human being because of his intelligence it's going to be probably because of his physical attributes are not going to be conducive for him being a consistent starting quarterback in this league but there's been signs of improvement so far sent from his rookie season he completed 52 percent of his passes his rookie season well so far he's sitting on almost 65 percent of his throws through the first five games of the season his yard per pretend, uh, per attempt average is up relative to last year the same time 7.5 yards that's the same as josh allen of the buffalo bills who without question is a franchise quarterback hurts passer rating is 93.3 that's over 15 points higher than it was a year ago and is better than Ryan Tannehill and washed up Ben Roethlisberger. So there, there, there's some good signs. Yeah, 12 for 26, 115 yards, one touchdown, one interception, average four and a half yards per attempt. Yeah, not good, not good. But you got to remember Tampa Bay is still the reigning defending Super Bowl champions. Yeah, I understand that their secondary was not all there, but hey man, you're going to have one of those type of games. And offensively, when you don't have that go-to receiver offensively when you don't have that strong running game offensively when you're still trying to put together stuff and you have players still learning each other and still just learning how to play in the league you're going to have games like on Thursday where the first 30 minutes of the game the Eagles had only one play in Tampa Bay territory and the offense didn't hit 100 yards until somewhere around the fourth quarter so it's going to happen it's going to happen trading Zach Ertz is not going to help the matter either it's going to help Arizona after they lost their tight end for the season with a bad knee, knee injury. But uh, moving forward, at least from the tight end position, and I think when you're speaking about 
young up-and-coming quarterbacks or young quarterbacks trying to find their way, slot receiver, tight end are two of the more important positions as far as pass catching is concerned for a young quarterback. So now, basically, with Devonta Smith still trying to develop into a franchise number one receiver, the fact that they traded their possibly most reliable target, Zach Ertz, to the Cardinals, what does that mean for Jalen Hurts moving forward? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows in terms of how much is going to disrupt his development in the short term. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Sunday early morning games. We got Miami at Jacksonville. Is that game going to be in London, by the way? What did we ever do to London to give to have them uh, for us to give them Miami at Jacksonville or just Jacksonville in general? So Miami, one and four is going to be at Jacksonville. Green Bay is at Chicago. Green Bay is four and one. Chicago is 3 and 2 Cincinnati 3 and 2 is going to be at Detroit they're 0 and 5 Houston 1 and 4 at Indianapolis they're 1 and 4 tough loss the other night by the way by Indianapolis snatching snatching defeat from the jaws of victory in that game against Baltimore the Rams 4 and 1 LA Rams 4 and 1 against the New York Giants 1 and 4 the Kansas City football team 2 and 3 at the Washington football team, two and three, two football teams going at it. Minnesota, two and three at Carolina, three and two. What was the uh, celebration, by the way? What was that all about between Mike Zimmer and Kirk Cousins? Were they celebrating or were they trying to fight each other when they were celebrating that win uh, last week? Interesting. So those are the early games. Miami, Jacksonville in London, Green Bay at Chicago, Cincinnati at Detroit, Houston at Indianapolis, the Rams at the Giants, KC at Washington, Minnesota at Carolina, the late games. You have the Las Vegas Raiders, who knows what they're going to be about after this week of turmoil at the Denver Broncos. Both teams are 3-2. and two. Denver, excuse me, Dallas 4-1 and one at, New, at New England. Dallas is 4-1, and one, New England 2-3. and three. Seattle. Three and two without Russell Wilson playing against Pittsburgh without an offense. Two and three, Arizona five and zero will take their show on the road to Cleveland. Interesting game between the Cardinals and the Cleveland Browns. Cleveland sits at three and two, and then you have Monday Night Football. The Buffalo Bills are they the best team in the AFC? Are they the best team in football? Are they top two, top three? Are they right up there with I don't know what um, Arizona and the Rams and. Uh, in Tampa and such are the Bills of that quality. Well, they're going to be playing at Tennessee, who won last week to improve to 3-2 and two against the Jacksonville Jaguars. So that is the schedule for this upcoming Week 6 in the NFL. Games of interest that I'm taking a look at here. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers already played, so I'm taking a look at the Green Bay Packers 4-1 and one, at the Chicago Bears 3-2. and two. Both teams are on winning streaks. Green Bay at four, Chicago at two. Green Bay in the series that they always talk about. Ooh, what a great series and this, that, and the other. And my goodness gracious, Green Bay and Chicago, Bart Starr and Vince Lombardi versus George Hallis and blah, 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 and Gail Sayers and Dick Buckets, blah, blah, blah. Well, great. Guess what? Ain't nobody alive when the Packers and the Bears actually had some really meaningful wars against each other. And I Damn it, I hate to use the word wars. When those guys had really good competitions against each other. Green Bay has won 19 of the past 22 meetings, counting the playoffs, and the Packers are 21-5 and against Chicago in games that Aaron Rodgers 
had started. Rivalry? There is none. It's like when people talk about, ooh, the biggest rivalry between St. John's and Georgetown. Shit, that hasn't been a rivalry in, what, 40 years? Somewhere, give me a break, please. So Justin Fields for Chicago, the starting quarterback, much better, much better past two games after the disastrous start against Cleveland where, I don't know, man, Matt Nagy was like, uh, Matt, what the fuck kind of a game plan is that? What exactly was that all about? So against um, Detroit and last week against Vegas, hey, you know what? Take those two games into account. Fields, 23 of 37, 320 yards, one touchdown, one interception combined. Most importantly, Detroit and Vegas fell to the Chicago Bears, so three and two. Hey, you know what? You're starting a quarterback here. The defense is playing better for Chicago. It's all going to be incumbent upon Matt Nagy to put to put um, Fields in a, an opportune situation for him to quote-unquote not blow it if it's truly the Chicago Bears' interest and Matt Nagy's interest to keep his job to get to the playoffs. I don't know what the marchings order is from his boss, the uh, check writer, or the GM, but it would be advantageous for um, just for uh, Matt Nagy to keep his job if he could take this rookie quarterback and get him into the playoffs. He'll probably also buy some time if, for instance, Chicago makes the playoffs this season and then for some reason they don't make the playoffs next season. It might give Nagy a little bit more time rather than, say, for instance, if the Bears go 6-11, 7-10 or something like that, it would make it a little bit uh, more certain that Nagy would not have his job moving forward. So... There you go. The Green Bay Packers, of course, still doing. They're still, you know, I mean, they're not, as I mentioned before, still under the guise of solid, not spectacular. Still looking for that humongous 2020 MVP type of game from someone like an Aaron Rodgers. Um, But Devontae Adams is becoming one of the best receivers in the game. When I say one of the best, he already is one of the best. But now I'm talking about the best Receiver in the game, leads the NFL in catches at 42 and receiving yards at 579. He's coming off a performance where he caught 11 passes for a career high, 206 yards. Man, when you're speaking about targets and you're speaking about trust and you're speaking about all those things, man, it's all about Aaron Rodgers believing solely in uh, Devontae Adams. A little bit with Randall Cobb, but man, when you're speaking about Adams having nearly two and a half times more catches than the other three and three times as many yards as any other receivers on the team. When you're speaking about Aaron Jones ranking second on the team in catches with 17 and Devontae Adams is up there with 42. When you have Devontae Adams leading the squad with 579 yards while the second leading receiver in yardage is Randall Cobb at 157. Yeah, that shows me that, you know, guess what? Um, he trusts Devontae Adams when you're speaking about Aaron Rodgers and probably not too many other people after that. So moving forward, there's got to be a little bit more diversity, a little bit more sharing of the sugar uh, for the Packers receiving game, passing game to move forward. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Some of the games that I'm looking at, the Kansas City used to be champions versus the Washington Irrelevant Skins. Two and three for Kansas City, Washington two and three. Tale of two bad defenses going through the first five weeks of the season. One defense we knew was going to be bad. The other one, we had no idea. Both are ranked at the bottom, near the bottom of most uh, defensive categories when you're speaking about the defenses of 
Kansas City and Washington. Kansas City is tied for the most giveaways in the league with 11 after two fumbles and two interceptions last week in the loss to Buffalo. I think those can be corrected. Washington has turned the ball over seven times. I don't think that can be as easily corrected, especially when you're speaking about the weak arm quarterback that we have right now who likes to think that he's Brett Favre. Um, I wonder moving forward now, is there going to be a blueprint now? If Washington is going to fall off the rails and their secondary has been uh, decimated by poor play and um, inconsistency, I wonder if the football team from Kansas City is going to be able to take advantage of the situation of who they're playing and the secondary that they're going against and do the same thing that Buffalo did against the Washington football team a couple of games ago that the New Orleans Saints did a game ago against the Washington football team, which is to kind of shore up, kind of get some momentum, kind of get some good vibes some positivity in terms of uh, seeing some really good numbers, putting some points on the board and kind of mending some of the uh, deficiencies of their offense. If you remember while Buffalo was coming off a 35 to nothing drubbing over the Miami Dolphins, there was speak about, hey, what's going on with uh, Josh Allen? You know, he's not uh, playing at the level. His completion percentage is down and he's not making the dynamic plays. And while it was only three games into the season, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? Well, what was happening was he got to uh, play the Washington football team and Washington had no answer for Josh Allen. Allen put up really good numbers and he's taken off and has some great momentum since. Jameis Winston, a guy who was inconsistent against Washington, he came in and played really well. I mean, how in the world do you complete? Did you see that uh, Hail Mary pass that was uh, thrown at the end of the first half in the game against uh, Washington for New Orleans? And it looked like the receiver just ran down and said, oh, no one's going to guard me. Okay, here I am. Thank you. Touchdown. (sighs) Interesting. So with Kansas City, you're speaking about some of the things that they need to work on offensively, improving the running game, even though Clyde Edwards-Alaire is not going to be available because of injury. Um, This is going to be a good time for that offensive line to uh, gain some continuity and gain some positivity. It's a a good time in the team that they're playing that Patrick Mahomes can go ahead and get his mojo back. It's going to be a good time for some of these receivers to uh, go ahead and do their thing. And it's going to be a good time with the offense that the Kansas City football team is playing against with Washington where Terry McLaurin is probably, well not probably, he is their most dangerous weapon and probably their only real weapon that this is an opportunity for Kansas City's defense to go ahead and make a statement to themselves and maybe gain a little bit more confidence in what they're doing moving forward. Washington on defense has given up 33, 30, and 43 points in the past uh, three games. So on the offensive side, hey, there's some opportunities possibly for Kansas City to right the wrong. If you remember the last time that they lost a game and went ahead and played a team that they could have uh, gotten right with in terms of making some really good uh, numbers, pulling up some really good numbers, offensive numbers, it was uh, two weeks ago against the Philadelphia Eagles. And they lost, after they lost to the Los Angeles Chargers, they went across the country, played the Eagles, and put up 42 on that uh, team. So... Maybe they can do the same thing with the Washington, my Washington Inepskins. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us. Game of the week, the LA Chargers and the Baltimore Ravens, both sitting at four and one. It's going to be Justin Herbert versus Lamar Jackson. 
as both look to continue their push for the MVP last week against Cleveland. Herbert was fantastic. Chargers winning 47-42, 26-43, 400 yards, four touchdowns, ran for a touchdown. Lamar Jackson in that Monday night game had the game of his life, 31-25, overtime victory over Indianapolis, 37-43. That's right, Lamar Jackson, 37-43. for 43. That's right, in one game, 47, excuse me, 37-43, for 442 yards. 442 yards, four touchdowns, ran for 62 yards on 14 carries. He was the total offense for the Baltimore Ravens, the most incredible performance so far this season. Don't think he's going to be doing that against a San Diego, damn it, against the Los Angeles defense, which is uh, much improved and much better than Indianapolis. But that game between Lamar and Justin Herbert is going to be a game that I'm going to be watching very closely and intently. So yeah, man, week six in the NFL, not the mega story out there in terms of Tom, Tom Brady going back to New England or, you know, two undefeated teams playing each other, Super Bowl preview and all that kind of stuff, but a solid week in the NFL, very much on Sunday, sitting down on my couch the entire day, looking forward to watching some pretty good football. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Spoke about the NFL, spoke about Grudengate, spoke about things, what we need to do to get rid of Daniel Snyder being the owner of the Washington football team. Is there any way in D.C. that we can do something to set this man up the way we did uh, Marion Barry for him not to become mayor of D.C. back in the day? Is there anything, if there's some hooker, if there's somebody that we can that we can hire to go ahead and maybe catch Snyder cheating or doing crack or, you know, speaking vile about blacks or gays or Jews or so. He's Jewish, so that'd be something. Uh, You know, speaking about, uh, you know, anybody, Jews, uh, women, anything. Is there anything that we can do for being a Washington football fan like me? Is there anything that we can do to bring some hope in terms of getting rid of this man and hopefully getting an owner in there that can, I don't know, lead us to relevancy lead us lead us out of the out of the town of embarrassingville is there anything we discussed that in the on the podcast today also broke down week five week six excuse me of the nfl some of the games that i'm going to be interested in talked about the thursday night game between the uh, philadelphia eagles and the tampa bay buccaneers talked about the games coming up this sunday such as the lamar jackson versus justin herbert uh, contest spoke about <clears throat> the Chicago Bears and the Green Bay Packers so <clears throat> went ahead and talked about those things now 
as I clear my throat, let me clear my throat. I'm going to go ahead and speak a little bit about what's going on week seven of college football. Even in the beginning part of my podcast was speaking about the uh, possibility, you know, when I was speaking about Major League Baseball and breaking down the San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers series and the fact that a team that won 107 games in the San Francisco Giants were playing a team that won 106 games with the New York with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and they weren't playing in the National League Championship game. They were playing in basically the second round of the National League playoffs. How unfair it might be, and how a team that won 106 games like the Los Angeles Dodgers would have to go and play a play-in game against a very talented and tough St. Louis Cardinals team, and then go on the road and play a um, San Francisco Giants team, the best five out of uh, three out of five series, and then have to start on the road against an Atlanta Brave team, which is not nearly as talented or as good as the Dodgers. Now, time will tell in this series, now being seven games, if Atlanta could go ahead and pull off the upset. But if you're just taking a look at the accomplishments of the Dodgers this season compared to the Atlanta Braves this season, and you're speaking about records and everything, you can clearly deduce that the... Dodgers are the better team, but because of the rules that have been implemented in baseball now for, I don't know how long, but it's been a while that, uh, you know, the division winner gets the opportunity to play on the playoffs. They get home field advantage over a team that didn't win their division. It just so happens that the Braves were in a much weaker division than the Los Angeles Dodgers, so that's the way it is. Now, you can complain and you can whine, but the Dodgers, Dodgers fan base and everybody else knows what the rules of the games are, and they have been situated in there for a while, so there's really no um, there's no ambiguity in terms of uh, how the, the Dodgers get on this road, on this path, to uh, try to repeat as World Series champions. In football, in college football, and NFL is the same Basketball is the same. We all have these rules and regulations and stipulations put into where, hey, you know, it might not be fair that a team from the Western Conference that won 50 games might not make the playoffs while a team from the Eastern Conference in the NBA that won 42 games is going to be the fifth seed. That's not fair. That team from the West is a better team and the better record and blah, blah, blah. The rules are in place to how it goes down. The team knows, you know, I know, we all know. In college football, when we come up with the top four teams, to play in the playoffs, I don't have any idea of how they uh, come up with the four teams. Now, yes, you can sit there and go, well, Wendell, let me see here. Four undefeated teams, probably the four best teams. Most of the time, that's not the case. And when we're looking at a bunch of guys who I don't know what the qualifications are to go ahead and make these decisions on who the four best teams are, I don't know how the process is being made in terms of deciding who the top four teams in college football are going to be. Strength of schedule, who did they play, uh, who's the better team, who's the most talented, who's the best team on paper, who had the highest recruiting classes, so that means that team is more talented and one slip up doesn't mean that they're not one of the four best teams over a team that might be undefeated, but yet their season schedule was weak or, you know, they had five really weak games and where they played down to the competition and could have lost against inferior opponents and opposed to a team that played a much tougher schedule but had one loss so how much do you put into the factor that that team is undefeated compared to a team that lost once and then how do you compare a team that won all of their games but had a weak schedule compared to a team that might have lost early in the season one game but yet and still beat three or four top 20 teams in convincing fashion how then do you make the deduction that this team should be in that team should be out this team should be here this team should be there it's uh for me uh you know it's uh i don't understand it don't get it don't want to get it but uh, 
That's the rules with college football pertaining to that. But, you know, there's no there's no method to the madness in terms of what are they coming up with. There's no consistency from year to year, from week to week, in terms of what are we going to do to decide who the four best teams are other than Alabama, Ohio State, are the, you know, masters of the universe. And without question, they're the four best teams. And I don't know. I don't know. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So after that second verbiage of discussion concerning the college football playoffs and how the sausage is made, let me go ahead and speak about some games this weekend. When you're speaking about um, college football, don't think it's going to be as exciting as it was Last week, because anytime Alabama goes down in the way that they went down in the game that was on prime was on prime time, I don't think anything's going to be touching a scenario or situation or drama like that. But not many, if any, marquee matchups this week in college football weekend in college football. You have the number twelve ranked Oklahoma State at number twenty five uh, Texas. Then you have the number one ranked team Georgia versus. Um, the number 11th ranked Kentucky Wildcats. So if you take a look at Kentucky at Georgia, what do we say here, man? Is this the last chance for the number one ranked team in the country to uh, suffer a loss in a regular season? Is this it? I know that Georgia has Florida next week, but they've been scuffling just a bit, and they lost to Kentucky. So you're taking a look at the remaining schedule for Georgia after the Kentucky game. If they get by this game and then they get by Florida, who's going to beat them? Missouri? They're at Tennessee after that, then Charleston Southern, then at Georgia Tech. Really, I really don't see too many major roadblocks um, for Georgia moving forward. So, you know, this is a situation where I think that uh, for teams who are hoping to see Georgia lose, lose or fan bases who are hoping to see Georgia lose, this is one of two more bites at the apple for for you guys to uh, sink your teeth into the hope and prayers that somebody can go ahead and up in Georgia and take them off that perch of being number one. They still rely, speaking of the Bulldogs of Georgia, still rely heavily on their defense. The units only allow five and a half points per game, 203 yards per game. They've allowed 33 points all season, two shutouts, and four games total of holding teams to seven points or less. Yes, we all know about how great the Georgia defense is. We've gone on and on and on and on. But moving over to the offensive side of the ball, it's been... um, a Kirby Smart, head coach of Georgia football, a bland, boring, but effective type of offense. Um, you know, th- this is not going to be anything where, uh, you know, Mike Leach is going to be taking notes or Lane Kiffin is going to be uh, digging into the playbook and the philosophy of Kirby Smart in Georgia. But when you have a defense like that, there's no need for an offense to try to put up 52 points on the board. Now, the last five games against UAB, that's University of Alabama, Birmingham, Uh, South Carolina, Vanderbilt, Arkansas, and Georgia, excuse me, in Auburn, Georgia is averaging 45 points a game. In fact, they put up 37 points against then number eight, Arkansas, and then put up 34 against then number 18, Auburn at Auburn with a backup quarterback starting for JT Daniels. I know the law offices of Stenson Bennett. Ah, 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 Um, He's been doing well, though. He's really didn't do well. 21-32 in the games against Arkansas and Auburn. 303 yards. 231 yards against Auburn. Two touchdowns. No interceptions. He's been uh, he's been the game manager. Don't screw this up. I don't know how bad of a quarterback with that defense. If you're Georgia. <clears throat> excuse me. I've got to clear my throat here. If you're Georgia and you have that defense 
And I just read you some of the numbers of domination that they have. 203 yards total. Four games so far that they've allowed seven points or less. Um, averaging, giving up only five points per game. How, how bad of an offense must you be to put Georgia in jeopardy of losing a football game? So there's been no update on JT Daniels' status for his availability against Kentucky. I don't, I don't know why exactly do you rest him again. I mean, again, this is a situation where you have Kentucky and you have Florida. You could say that if he's close to being, I don't know, 80, 85% somewhere around there, do you start JT Daniels with the with the notion that uh, if we're going to go ahead and we're going to beat Alabama or we're going to go ahead and get to where we need to go to as far as winning a national championship game, somehow, someway, we have to start getting JT Daniels back in the rotation. And if you're going to be starting him, you might as well start him against some teams that are going to be at least halfway decent. I don't I don't know how much starting JT Daniels after you play Kentucky and, <clears throat> Kentucky and Florida, I don't know how much getting reps against uh, – Charleston Southern and Georgia Tech is going to get you prepared for playing against uh, Alabama. Now on defense, the way Alabama played, it might not be, might not that be that big of a stretch to begin with. But if you know we're speaking about you know down the road playing against some teams for the national championship, you would want to have JT Daniels if that's truly going to be your guy. You want to have him get some reps against some team of consequence, some team of uh, substance. So the Kirby Smart go ahead and uh put Daniels in the game against uh, Kentucky, or do you go ahead and you just stick with uh, Stetson Bennett, who is more than capable of going ahead, going ahead and going up against a much improved defense in Kentucky. But as I mentioned before, a Georgia team on defense, that's always going to keep you in games because of their domination. And on the flip side, if you take a look at the Kentucky offense, they're, they've been struggling themselves in terms of putting up some real numbers on the board. So this is not going to be some type of shootout. So, you're not going to ask Stetson Bennett to go ahead and be the quarterback that's going to try to win you a football game. This is a game where you could rely on a pedestrian but still pretty effective running game from Georgia, rely on their defense, and still have that be enough to uh, win comfortably. They're what, Georgia? 23.5-point favorites or something like that? And we've already seen Stetson Bennett against a top-10 team in Arkansas uh, play well, even though in that game he only threw 12 passes. But as a team overall, being the quarterback of that team against a top-10 opponent in Arkansas who was coming off a couple of impressive victories, um, the need for having JT Daniels or the, the, the need of having JT Daniels to try to win a game against a top-10, top-15 ranked opponent has already been put to bed because of what? the Bulldogs did against Arkansas with Stetson Bennett as their quarterback. So moving forward for this game against Kentucky, JT Daniels, Stetson Bennett, I would get to the point where, you know what, maybe it's a situation where Stetson comes in and starts the game. And then if depending upon how the game is going on, you put JT Daniels in there. And ultimately, if you believe that JT Daniels based on his talent is the team that's going to be able to put Georgia over the top and win that championship for real, then you go ahead and you start to ease him back in in terms of being the full-time quarterback. Or do you just say, you know what what we're doing? Defense, uh, quarterback that's not going to screw things up, and our defense is so awesome. We, we don't need, we don't need someone like a JT Daniels. We have a defense that's good enough to win a championship the way it is right now. So Stetson Bennett, for what he's doing right now, he's not going to um, make stupid plays on a consistent basis. He's not going to put you in disadvantaged situations on a uh, on a uh, daily basis. He's a smart guy. He understands his role. He knows what he's supposed to do. He's experienced. He's played before. So basically, yeah, if we had to rely on him to be a, 
a top-tier quarterback, or if we had to rely on him to be in a shootout against some of the uh, offenses and some of the teams that we're going to be playing down the road to win championships, SEC championships, national championships, semifinal football playoff championships, well then, yeah, maybe we would be a little bit more hesitant to go forward with Stetson Bennett as our starting quarterback. But if we're going to have a defense that's going to be holding teams to 5 points, 10 points, 14 points, 17 points, at the very most 21 points a game, well, shit, we have the offense and we have the quarterback that we should be able to go ahead and to uh, compete with that. So, you know, moving forward with Georgia, that'll be the only thing really worth paying attention to in terms of the quarterback situation. They brought JT Daniels over from USC, who was a five-star recruit and one of the best quarterbacks in California and in the country at that time. And he lost his job to Keevan Slovis, so he decided to transfer from USC and he went over to Georgia and he was supposed to be, speaking of Daniels, he was supposed to be the guy that was going to finally give Georgia the bona fide quarterback, college quarterback that could really have them, that could complete the team in terms of you have five stars on defense, you have five stars on the offensive line, you have five stars at the running back, you have five stars at the wide receiver, you had five stars at the tight end, you have five and four stars and highly recruits at all of these positions that are getting you in the position to win, but unfortunately you don't have the quarterback to put the cherry on the top. JT Daniels coming over from USC to Georgia was supposed to be that cherry on the top. He has not been the cherry. That cherry has been rotten because of injuries. Stetson Bennett, your typical Jake Fromm type of game-managing quarterback, again, playing against an Alabama team from last season, might not be able to get you to the promised land and win you national championships and win you uh, SEC championship games and that type of thing. But with the defense and the lack of dynamic quarterbacks and the lack of dynamic, consistent offenses that have been um, the norm in the past for college football this season we don't have a Lincoln Riley playing with a Jalen Hurts or a or a Kyler Murray or a Baker Mayfield we don't have a situation where you know you had Alabama with Tua Tungavailoa and Mac Jones and Jaden Waddle and Henry Shrugs and Najee Harris and all of these unbelievable uh, athletes and unbelievable offensive players where I don't give a damn in college football who you were going to have as a defense that that squad was going to be putting up mega numbers and mega points you don't have that in college football this year. You don't have that Heisman winning trophy quarterback who is going to be a top three or top four pick in the NFL draft. You don't have that this year in college football. So you have a situation where, yes, this could be the one time in you know the last couple of years that you can win with a strong defensive unit, all three phases of the secondary being strong or second of the defense being strong and just having yourself a game-managing quarterback to uh, do so in Georgia is in that predicament right now. Let's see if they continue on what they're doing with JT Daniels, or excuse me, with uh, Stetson Bennett, or they move over to JT Daniels eventually. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Other games we have today, speaking about Iowa versus Purdue, the number three ranked Cincinnati Bearcats, Bobcats, whoever they are at UFC, UCF, excuse me, number four Oklahoma Sooners. Do 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 with new quarterback Caleb Williams. They're gonna be at TCU, number five Alabama. Trying to rebound from the loss against Mississippi State in the Pirates of Mike Leach. Hot seat coaches. I wanted to get into this because um well USC was the first one to fire their football coach, Clay Helton, September thirteenth. Two games in, 
the loss of Stanford, that's it. That we're done. We're done. We're done. We're done. We're done. So when we were speaking about, when you were talking about, when you were discussing who's the coach at the beginning of the season, who's on the hottest hot seat, many people might have said Clay Helton, but many people didn't think that Clay Helton would be the first one to be fired, especially after two games at the beginning of the season. Probably the person, for those who know anything about college football and coaches whose jobs were in jeopardy, many people would say the coach that would likely be fired first would be Ed Orgeron um, for LSU. So uh, nothing has changed there in terms of his hot seat, man. His tenure at LSU at the head football coach is coming to an end. This season, LSU is 3-3. Three and three. Yay, they have wins against Central Michigan at Mississippi State and McNeese State. Yay! Way to go. When your best win of the season is at Mississippi State, not good. Not good. And the losses have been at UCLA, Auburn, and at Kentucky. In fact, against Kentucky this past weekend, they lost 42-21 to in a game that wasn't even that close, as the score has indicated. We're speaking about an LSU team that trailed 21 to nothing and 35-7 to at one point in the game. No! No, 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 no for LSU. That is incredibly unacceptable and inexcusable. Losing to Kentucky? They're getting to the point now with the cheater Will Wade and how much he's paying to get these recruits and all of the shadiness that's going on with the basketball program. They're at the level now where the basketball program should be not losing to the Kentucky basketball program by uh, that amount and by that that badly. Football? Shit. Kentucky? Kentucky? We're flipping LSU and we're getting our asses whooped and embarrassed by Kentucky? Not on the basketball court, but on the football field? No. No, 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 no. So you take a look at three and three. You take a look at LSU's remaining games. They're playing at Florida, then at Mississippi, then at Alabama, then Arkansas, then Louisiana Monroe, and then at uh, Texas A&M. One, two, three, four, five ranked teams under the last six. You could be looking glass half full. You could be looking at LSU with a with a um, season-ending record of four and eight. Goodbye, Ed. Goodbye. Since winning the championship in 2019 with Joe Brady as the offensive coordinator or the game-passing manager or co-offensive coordinator, whatever title you want to put in there, but since losing him to the Carolina Panthers as the offensive coordinator and then losing Joe Burrow, to the NFL draft after he won the Heisman Trophy his senior year and Justin Jefferson and Clyde Edwards-Alaire and those awesome skill players on that LSU uh, offense. Randy Moss's kid was also the tight end on that team. After winning that championship in 2019, LSU under Orgeron has been average in every single way, shape, or form at the very best. Eight and eight since winning the national championship. Eight and eight. And this is according to ESPN Stats and Information. LSU is only one of three teams in the AP poll to go 9-7 and seven or worse in the 16 games following a national title. You have to go way back to 1938 when TCU went 10-6. Excuse me, 6-10 and 10 after winning the 1938 championship. Auburn went 9-7 and seven after winning the 2010 title, saying goodbye to Cam Newton. Minnesota, 1941. How many of you were still living around in 1941? Went 9-7 after winning their national championship. So we're speaking about some uh we're speaking about some lean years here in terms of we got 38, 41 and then 2010. So what? You're talking about the 69 years difference between 1941 and 2010 with Minnesota and Auburn and then we have to go another 11 years before we get to this stat from uh, from ESPN 
stats and information about LSU being one of three teams in the AP poll era to go 9-7 or worse in the 16 games following a national title. Goodbye, Ed. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You take a look outside of maybe Auburn. TCU, not a football power. Minnesota, not a football power. We're speaking about LSU here, man. We're speaking about a football program that, yes, they should be one of the elites. When we speak about, I mean, if you're a Cajun or if you're a um, uh, Louisiana native and you enjoy the LSU football program and you follow the LSU football program, damn, why are you guys not on the same level as in Alabama? Why are you guys not on the same level as in Oklahoma? Why are you guys not on the same level as in Ohio State? Why in the world? The LSU football program on a consistent basis, why are you not on the same level with the Clemson over the last six or seven years? You had a nice little decent run with um, Les Miles. You won a championship with that squad, what, about eight, nine, ten years ago. Then there were some down times. Then you go ahead, you bring in Ed Orgeron. And as I mentioned before, outside of uh, 2019, for LSU, what have you shown me? In terms of putting you on the same level as in Alabama, as in Oklahoma, as in Ohio State. What? Where? You're t- level two, man. You're tier two. That's what uh, LSU is. You're on the same level in the best of times with a Notre Dame. You're on the same level with the best of times as a Michigan. You're on the same level with the best of times as, say, oh, I don't know, maybe now in Oregon. That's not LSU football. That's not that tradition. That's not what the expectations are. That's not what uh, you're supposed to be uh, striving for. That's not what you're supposed to be happy with. I mean, especially at LSU where you have fucking no morals whatsoever when it comes to your sports team. You'll cheat. You'll do whatever you need to do to make sure that you have an uh, elite product on the field. So you're going to be doing all of this bullshit and you're going to be average at best. Joe Burrow, Joe Bur- Brady was the only reason why two guys, one player, one coach. That's the reason for your success. Again, the um, talent surrounding Joe Burrow was off the charts. And on a consistent basis, especially on defense, LSU has always been strong in terms of what uh, they bring in as far as recruits are concerned. But it hasn't uh, added up to the type of production that should be expected on the field when you're speaking about comparing them to the best of college football programs over the past, I don't know, five, six, seven years. And when you throw in all of this bullshit and you're speaking about Orgeron being added to a, uh, as a defendant in a Title IX lawsuit action against LSU where he's accused of knowing about but failing to report the alleged rape of a student by former LSU running back Darius Geis. I mean, again, anywhere else, that would be a huge problem where where morals are in the toilet when it comes to uh, sports in LSU. uh, uh, This is a situation that even Ed Orgeron might not be able to uh, get out of. Again, if he was winning championships, probably could. But if you're going to be average and this shit is going to be put on your table, uh, you gotta go. You gotta go. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Other coaches in trouble. Manny Diaz of Miami. In this third season, I don't know, man. I mean, how how long? How much longer? And this is coming from a guy whose favorite team on earth is Georgetown basketball, and I'm still expecting them to uh, have it be somewhere around 1984, 1985. So, speaking of unrealistic expectations of trying to uh, match the success that someone had back in the 80s, which was, what, 40 years ago? Speaking now to take it over to college football, how, how long are we expected to have Miami somehow, some way, get back to what they were in the 1980s when they were the, if not the most dominant football program in college athletics, one of the two or three? Manny Diaz, in the third season, 
it's got to go. If you're speaking about, man, I want to see Miami get to the uh, get to the levels that we were back in the 80s and you know early part of the 90s. Now Miami entered the season number 14 in the country, but afterwards, after playing Alabama, frauds. <laughs> In terms of that situation, then in week two, they lost to um, nearly lost to Appalachian State at home. They kicked a 43 yard field goal with 204 left in the game to win 25 23. You're just begging, scratching, and clawing a win at home against Appalachian Flippin' State. You have to uh, kick a game winning field goal with two minutes left to go to, um, to avoid that embarrassment. Not good. Then Miami lost to Michigan State the next week. And then later on, they lost to Virginia Tech. Yay! And what's worse for Miami is they're going to be without starting quarterback De'Ara King going forward. He's going to have season ending shoulder surgery stemming from an injury he suffered earlier this year. So the man who was uh, one of the first to take advantage of name, image, and likeness. Uh, he's going to be done for the season. So, again, I don't know what the expectations are at Miami. I don't know that eventually the fan base wants to, you know, see results that was uh, the Miami squad of the 1980s and 90s. I I don't know exactly where they fall. I don't know if those expectations are going to be that high realistically. I know for a true fact that it shouldn't be where they are right now. I still think Miami, especially when you're speaking about how strong that and fertile that recruiting ground is, is that I think Miami can become a consistent top, anywhere between top 8, 12, top 12, 13 squad on a consistent basis. I don't think they'll get to the level of Alabama. They don't have the resources. They don't have the finances. They don't have the facilities. They don't have the history. They don't have the location. They don't have the environment to compete with, uh, you know, these college towns with the long tradition of college football where that's all they live and breathe. You're speaking about Alabama. You're speaking about Louisiana. You're speaking about South Carolina, Clemson. You're speaking about Columbus, Ohio, Ohio State. I mean, in Miami, you're speaking about a town in a city where they don't even give a damn about their own professional sports teams. Why then would they go ahead and go gaga over a college team? Even when Miami was doing great, even when Miami had Bernie Kozar and Michael Irvin and were winning championships and popping out first round draft picks on a consistent basis, their fan base wasn't as rabid. Their fan base wasn't as dedicated. Their fan base wasn't as loyal. Their fan base wasn't as connected to some of the top tier programs uh, in college football, like as I mentioned before, in Alabama, as I mentioned before, like Ohio State, like I mentioned before, like a Clemson. So I don't, you know, it's, it's going to it's going to be a long sludge for Miami to try to get back in one moment in time. You know, that was a situation with uh, college football where Miami was doing their thing. Now, you know, times have changed. I don't think it's it's possible for Miami to get back to where they were, but they got to be doing better than what they've been doing the last three years so I think Manny Diaz ultimately is going to pay for that so Mike Norvell at Florida State Scott Frost at Nebraska those are some other teams to take a look at to see if they're going to be moving forward in a different direction with their um, with their head football coaches but uh, that's college football in a nutshell for this weekend thank you very much for listening now for your listening enjoyment I need to ask you the question can you feel it can you feel it can you feel it? Can you?
Last segment of the podcast. Welcome back to Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. So glad that you can be with us doing everything that you need to do to make your world, to make your space, to make your place, to make your neighborhood, to make your household the best place it can be. Doing it through love, unity, respect for others, regardless of financial background, regardless of skin color, regardless of gender, regardless of who they love, regardless of political affiliation within reason, love, peace, unity, harmony, moving this country forward in that direction for everyone, for everybody. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. As I mentioned before, the final segment of the program, going to be speaking about a little situation with Kyrie Irving. Jeez, man, this guy, man. I, I it's, it's like, is anything I don't know, man. Where when when other people see chaos and and consternation and awkwardness and just stuff, does he see like a bed of roses and a sunny day and and tulips and roses? I don't know, man. I I don't know. I don't know with Kyrie Irving. The guy is so doggone talented. It's uh, spectacular, but. Man, putting up with this guy on the everyday. Yeah, I know he's a man. Yeah, I know you have to respect him as a man. Yeah, I know he doesn't conform. Yeah, I know that in this world moving forward that the great leaders of this world, the great leaders of this country, when everything has gotten done, when things that have been downhearted and downtrodden and everything has to be moved to a different space, to a different place for the betterment of others. I know those people have been considered radical. Yes, I know those people have been considered quirky. Yes, I know those people have been considered unique. Yes, I know all of these things, Kyrie. Yes, I understand that. That conformity is not probably the best the best way to change things for the better. I understand all that. So if you're a little bit uh, different, if you're a little bit unique than the others, I get it. I understand it, man. But Jesus fucking a Christ. Could you just for, I don't know, maybe six months, just, I don't even want to use the term fall in line. But could you just go along can you just, as far as your employment is concerned, and I know I'm sounding selfish because I want to see Kyrie Irving play, so, you know, I, I understand that I'm being selfish in saying this, but geez, man, I mean, <sighs> so the Brooklyn Nets has finally said, you know what, screw it, we're done. We are done, we are done, we are done as far as what Kyrie Irving is concerned. You know, he doesn't want to get the vaccine and, you know, New York laws. The city's you know, law says that if you're not vaccinated, then, you know, you can't basically come to work. So Kyrie Irving says, well, then screw it. I'm not vaccinated and I, uh, I'm i not going to work. So, you know, he's not going to play for the Brooklyn Nets until he's vaccinated or the city uh, vaccine mandate is lifted. And in the prepare statement by Nets GM Sean Marks on Tuesday, he said, given the evolving nature of the situation and after thorough deliberation, we have decided Kyrie Irving will not play or practice with the team until he is eligible to be a full participant. Kyrie has made a personal choice and we respect his individual right to choose. Currently, the choice restricts his ability to be a full-time member of the team and we will not permit any member of our team to participate with part-time availability. Of course, he didn't mention this in the statement, but I'm quite sure he also wanted to say that Kevin Durant and James Harden signed off on this, and so we're cool going ahead with this. Irving is reportedly unvaccinated against COVID-19, and New York City requires proof of at least one dose of a vaccine for entry to large indoor gatherings, a mandate that extends to Barclays Center and 
its employees. So Kyrie Irving will not play for the Brooklyn Nets until he's vaccinated or the city vaccine mandate is lifted. New York City requires proof or at least one dose of a vaccine for entry to large indoor gatherings, a mandate that extends to Barclays. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I don't, I don't know. So now there's a situation where, look, he's not going to be, the Nets aren't going to offer him a contract extension. Now, I, I don't know exactly how long this animus is going to last between the Nets and the uh, and, and the camp from Kyrie Irving. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Kyrie, who knows, man. By the time this podcast comes out, Kyrie Irving might decide, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and get the vaccine, play for the Nets, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Or he could be like, well, you know what, I'm a man, I'm going to stand like a man, and if you're going to be having me do this, then you know what, I'm going to flip the script again, and I'm going to retire, or I'll, I'll go over to China and play basketball, or Australia, or I don't know, maybe join Ricky Williams down there in South Florida, and uh, smoke dope and uh, do yoga, I don't know exactly what Kyrie Irving is going to do, no one knows what Kyrie you know, I don't know if his family members know what Kyrie Irving is going to do from one point to the next. So how the hell do I know what Kyrie Irving is going to do? So Irving tweeted on Saturday, I am protected by God and so are my people. We stand together. Good flipping Lord. In fact, Irving spoke about his decision not to get vaccinated and the consequences Wednesday on Instagram Live. He said a lot of bullshit. He says he's neither pro-vaccine nor anti-vaccine. And that he fully understands the ramifications of his decision. When people start speaking about, man, you know what? He's missing game checks. So he's going to be missing, you know, he's going to be out $381,000. And if he decides to, uh, you know, die on this hill in terms of I'm a man and I'm not going to be told whether I should be vaccinated or not. He's going to be losing $17 million. And I can't believe it. I'm not going to comment on that nonsense. What he does with his money is his business. It's none of my business. So he's not taking money out of my pocket. He's not taking a roof over my head where I live. He's not taking food off my table with his decision. So if that's what he wants to do, that's what he wants to do. It's his money. I don't know how much money he has in the bank. I don't want to know. I don't care to know. It's his personal business. So if his financials, I don't even give a damn if his financials are okay or not. This is his decision. He's a grown fucking man. And, you know, cool. You do what you need to do. So, I'm not going to get into that, but, you know, he said that, hey, I understand when people are sitting there talking about, oh, my God, you're going to give up $17 million because, you know, some folks sit there and say, man, I'm only making $20,000 a year. I'm barely getting by and scraping by, and you're going to be forfeiting $17 million somehow, some way. That's a that's a light shown on your character or that it's not very good and this, that, and the other. Don't, don't, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there with the, I only make X amount of dollars and I don't think it's fair that you're willing to give up millions upon millions of dollars when I'm making X amount of dollars. Don't, don't, don't go there. You sound like a fucking idiot. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. You worry about your money and Kyrie will worry about his money. Kyrie doesn't need to worry about my financial situation. I ain't going to be worrying about Kyrie Irving's financial situation. If he wants to give up $17 million, if he wants to give up $17 trillion, that's his fucking decision. And I'm not going to be judging him as a man based on that situation. I'll, I'll kind of give my thoughts and opinions about, you know, his thoughts and feelings about why he's not going to get vac- vaccinated. But when, you know, people start making comments and character assassinations, uh, thoughts and opinions because of what he's doing with his finances, y'all need to shut the fuck up with that and, and mind your own fucking business concerning that matter. But, um, you know, he said that the financial consequences, I know, I do not want to even do that, but it is reality that in order to be in New York City, in order to be on the team, I have to be vaccinated. I chose to be unvaccinated. 
And that was my choice. And I would ask you all just to respect that choice. I am going to continue to stay in shape, be ready to play, be ready to rock with my teammates and just be part of this whole thing. Um, he said, it's not a political thing. This is not about the NBA, not about any organization. It's about my life and what I am choosing to do. All right. <laughs> all right, man. That's, I mean, what else are, we, what else are you going to say to the man? I mean, you know, that's it. That's it. Right. That is decision. Don't, don't tell me how to live my life. You know, I'm going to do what I need to do. And if I decide I'm not going to get vaccinated, I'll come back and rock with my teammates, whatever happens. But as of right now, no one's going to tell me what to do. So I'm just going to go ahead and just do my thing. All right. You know, you have the opportunity to do so. Yeah. Other folks financially and responsibility wise, they don't have the opportunity to say, you know what? I'm going to quit my job or I'm not going to go to my job. And if it means I get fired from my job, oh, well, I'm going to be a man. I'm going to stand like a man or a woman or whatever and stand up for my principles and everything. A lot of people don't have the financial wherewithal to do that. Kyrie Irving does. Good for him. Awesome for him. The guy worked hard to get into the uh, position that he can uh, make that choice. So good for him. He says he plans not to retire. I don't believe that I'm retiring. Don't believe that I'm going to give up this game for a vaccine mandate or staying unvaccinated. Don't believe any of that shit, man. Well, I mean, I, I don't. Okay. I don't. I don't. I don't know. I don't, it's, again, it's Kyrie Irving is like, hey, man, good, good luck to you. Good luck to you. Um, you know, I, I, I know that if Kyrie Irving was, uh, you know, Billy, Billy Bob Smith living in, you know, bumfuck Iowa or Oklahoma or the sticks of Alabama or Louisiana, and he was coming up with this shit in a Southern, you know, redneck type of accent that, yeah, I'd probably be getting all up in his ass and calling them names and all those type of things. So that's hypocritical on my part. I'm, I'm kind of a douche when it comes to that type of stuff. With Kyrie Irving, I'm like, hey, man, do what you need to do. But, you know, he, he sounds a lot like those stupid motherfuckers down south who are sitting there talking about God's going to protect me from the virus. And because of that, that's why I'm not getting vaccinated or, you know, I'm, no one's going to tell me what to do. You ain't going to be taking away my liberties. I'm never going to get vaccinated. Government ain't going to tell me what to do. Dip, lip, dip, lip. So, you know, you see my you see my uh, hypocrisy right there? You see it spewing out of me? At least I at least I recognize it. So yeah, Kyrie Irving on an intelligence level doesn't sound any smarter than those fucking jackasses who are sitting there talking about, oh yeah, I'm not going to get vaccinated because shit, what's next? They tell me to get vaccinated, what's going to be next? They're going to be coming for my guns? So, you know, I'm, 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 hip I'm hypocritical in the old, hey man, you know, if that's what your decision is, whatever, whatever, you know, do what you need to do. Maybe I need to grow up a little bit and maybe change my tone about how I speak about Billy Bob and and Sally Sue and all that kind of shit talking about, I'm, I'm going to, Jesus is going to save me from the virus. I've got Jesus as a vaccine. I don't need anything stronger than that. So maybe I need to stop with that stupidity. Maybe, but I probably won't. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The return of Ben Simmons to the Philadelphia 76ers. I'm going to speak about this a little bit more in detail on my next uh, podcast. But uh, basically, it's going to be a situation where Hey, man, um, what about Ben Simmons in terms of, okay, Ben Simmons is back in camp. He doesn't like losing all of that money. Okay, cool. That's his situation. That's his prerogative. So he's going to be coming back to collect them checks. But, I mean, how much of a value can he be? On one hand, Ben Simmons wants to be traded. I do not want to stay with his Philadelphia 76ers. So I come out here and I start balling. Yeah, my value to be traded is going to go up. But... Daryl Morey, can I trust him to uh, go ahead and to trade me, even though I wanted to be traded if I start coming out here and I'm balling? 
Because if I start balling, that means that the Philadelphia 76ers are real contenders for the NBA championship, along with the Brooklyn Nets, along with the Milwaukee Bucks, along with the Los Angeles Lakers, possibly. So on one hand, I want to come out and ball to show my wherewithal in terms of uh, you know my trade value being sky high so I can go ahead and get off this team. But if I go ahead and I start balling, what's going to be the reason or what's going to be the appetite for Daryl Morey to go ahead and trade me? So if I go in there and I do the exact opposite and I don't play and I'm fucking around and I'm sabotaging the uh, situation here, I mean, what good is that going to do me? It's not going to raise my trade value anymore and I'm still going to be stuck in a miserable situation. I'm going to get booed the hell out by um, the home fans. And, you know, when we're speaking about Black America's head coach, Doc Rivers, what type of uh, what type of uh, headlong situation are we going to be heading into with that? So... I don't know, man. Ben, ben Simmons, Ben Simmons is back. How long is Ben Simmons going to be around? You know, um, Doc Rivers was out there throwing f bombs. Fuck, fuck you, bombs. I mean, what kind of what kind of bombs were we talking about here when they were having this discussion? It was reported that you know they insulted each other, or Doc Rivers was throwing out fuck yous to uh, Ben Simmons. Was was he using? Was he using, was Doc using the word fuck as an adjective or a pronoun or what? What would he say? Because he was saying, Ben, what you're doing is fucking ridiculous or I can't fucking believe this or, you know, this, that, and the other. Well, it might not be as bad or as horrible as if he's saying it in a, hey, man, you fucking this, you fucking that. I mean, that's, you know, what is that? Is that, is that, that's not an adverb, is it? That would be fuckingly, right? Uh, I don't know, man. I hadn't taken English in a while, even though I'm a substitute teacher. But basically, we'll be seeing exactly what happens moving forward with this situation. But it is time for me to uh, do something else. I am dead tired. It's been a it's been a long week. Me traveling from Las Vegas to Mesquite, and uh, I want to uh, fall asleep for like 15 hours and watch a little football in the meantime. So yeah, that's going to be it for me. Thank you very much for listening to Wendell's World of Sports. Next podcast, heavy into the NBA because the season's starting on Tuesday. There's still some things about Kyrie Irving and a possible trade uh, situation. Him, Ben Simmons, huh, huh, huh? disgruntled superstars, even though I don't think Kyrie is disgruntled at the Nets or anything like that, but, you know, the Nets might be disgruntled with Kyrie, Ben Simmons disgruntled with Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Brooklyn, they say that, no, we're not interested, Philadelphia, no, we're not interested in getting Kyrie because we're holding out for uh, Damian Lillard. Okay, man, we'll see how things goes if, uh, you know, maybe something like that will happen. I think that of all the teams that can make it happen, Philadelphia and Brooklyn, I think it would be advantageous for both um, squads, franchises to make that move. But there's some there's some uh, concerns on each end in terms of making that trade, which I'll be discussing in depth on my next podcast as I now go ahead and uh, end this podcast as I'm dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie and dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas doing the funky chicken and all those type of things too. So Wendell's world in sports, Jesus is love. A little tribute, special dedication uh, for those who are in love, special dedication for those who are doing what they need to do. You're in love with unity. You're in love with making this world a better place to be. You're in love with your wife. You're in love with your children and showing them the right way, telling them the right way by example, leading them the right way. So when they're taking over this world when they're the leaders, when they're the fathers, when they're the wives, when they're the mothers. They can go ahead from the lessons that we learned of treating others 
with respect and dignity, not by the color of their skin, not by their genders falling away from the ignorant stereotypes that divide us, that make my generation racist and ignorant and selfish in the world that we live in today with my generation and your generation. Maybe Jesus having love in your heart with Jesus, moving it on to those around you. Maybe it'll help move the society in a different way. Wendell's World in Sports. Jesus is love. Commodores, Lionel Richie, please take us home. Yeah.